0: Well, we mentioned already today that today marks the beginning of the Advent Christmas season, and we are exactly four days away, not four days away. Wow, that would not be good. We're all had a panic, right? Four Sundays away from Christmas Day. So today, on the first Sunday of Advent, we're going to observe the Lord's kind command of baptism. And four weeks from today, the last Sunday of Advent, on Christmas Day itself, we will be observing observing the Lord's kind command of the Lord's Supper. What a better way, I think, for true Christians to celebrate the Advent Christmas season. What a better way to frame our celebration of Christmas than with the two ordinances that Christ has given to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. This will be a blessing for us. These ordinances remind us of the nature of what it means to live the Christian life, and it also, they remind us of our mission As Christians, as to the nature, these two ordinances remind us, friends, that the Christian life at its core is inescapably corporate, that it's plural in nature, that baptism and the Lord's Supper remind us of the gathered in person nature of the Christian life, that you can't take the Lord's Supper or baptism alone or apart. They're telling you you belong to a body you're meant to gather. C.S. Lewis even argued in his own day that the command to take the Lord's Supper was one reason Christians are required to meet together in person. As to our mission, the baptism and the Lord's Supper remind us that our mission as Christians is to call men and women to experience the washing away of sins, which baptism symbolizes, and to enjoy fellowship with Christ through His death, through His resurrection, And that is what we remember when we take the Lord's Supper together. Indeed, we remember last week when we took the Lord's Supper together that as we take the Lord's Supper, Paul reminds us that we're preaching when we take the Lord's Supper. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death past until he comes again. So we're remembering this Advent season, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And what a blessing that we can begin Advent season And end it with two of Christ's only two commanded ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they mark us out as Christians. And they remind us, in summary, of the essentially corporate nature of our life as Christians and the mission that we should have as the church to proclaim his death and resurrection, to make disciples and baptize all of those who turn from their sins. Think of it like this. At least I thought of it like this. I know the holiday time can be very stressful, but it's also true that we get in holiday mode and we kind of get on break a little at Christmas season. Well, while we're on break and in holiday mode during the Christmas season, Christ is on a mission during the season of Advent. He's on a mission to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. It's one reason he saved us too, so that we would declare this good news to others just like the angels and the shepherds did at his birth, So we remember every year in December, Advent time at Emmanuel, this little phrase that missions is the purpose of the incarnation. That's why he came. And it should be the mission of our lives too during this Christmas season. Baptism and the Lord's Supper remind us of the essential nature of the Christian life and our mission as Christians to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. While we're thinking about baptism this morning, we're thinking about baptism in particular. Listen to what we confess as a church about baptism. This is in our statement of faith. We believe that believer's baptism is done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's actually part of our children's catechism this, this month. Not baptism, but who is God in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith and the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to new life. Now, we'll repeat this again just because there can be confusion. These two commands of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they don't give us salvation, but they evidence that we have been forgiven of our sins. Baptism and the Lord's Supper don't physically do anything or spiritually do anything to take away our sins, but they show people that our sins have already been forgiven. Well, here's one implication of that. To refuse baptism or to shrug it off when no good or godly authority is telling you just slow down and wait to refuse it. If no good authority is telling you to slow down and wait, calls your conversion into question and to miss the Lord's supper repeatedly while you gather for other suppers with just about everyone else and just about every other place is to disobey Christ's commands. And that calls your conversion into question, too. These are serious commands. That evidence, not that, not that he they, they not, not not that they save us, but they show that we have been saved. We're two of these. Well, I want to think about this one line. Believers' baptism is shows forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem. We don't use that word emblem much or ever. I don't know. Have you used it this month? Have you used the word emblem this month? We, we might use the word like logo. More often, like what's your team logo or what's your company logo? But I think emblem is richer than logo. An emblem is a visible picture, a representation of one's ideals and heritage. With It's replete with historical significance. So the American flag is a visible picture of our country. It's an emblem with three-dimensional meaning, historic meaning, deeply symbolic meaning. It's not just a logo. It's an emblem. Or go back even further. Knights of old went into battle with the king's emblem on their shield or the emblem of the king flying overhead. The emblem was a sign of the king's rule, his person, even the house, the dynasty from which he was from. Well, Christians for centuries have said baptism is an emblem, a solemn and beautiful one. Because in baptism, we show forth and a solemn and beautiful emblem Our faith in the crucified and risen Savior. Christian baptism is the emblem of our faith. Note again, baptism doesn't affect the forgiveness of sins. And unlike unlike the Church of Rome that would teach that baptism can operate apart from faith, no, 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 baptism shows forth our faith in the resurrected Christ, the risen Savior. So baptism, like a coat of arms is a solemn and beautiful emblem whereby we declare our faith. Here's an old word. Our fealty, our allegiance. It's an emblem that we use to display our allegiance to King Jesus, who's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. It's an emblem, a pledge of loyalty, fealty to Jesus the King. It's a solemn and beautiful emblem. And as a congregation, As we see the two men later profess their faith in baptism, we too are admonished to hold fast to Christ. And in observing their baptism, we're called to remember our own. Recall what Christ has done for you. Are you living in light of it? We've been raised to walk in a new kind of life, a newness of life. We are children of the light, co-heirs with Christ. Remember your baptism and live in light of it. This is who you are. This is what Christ has done. Your life is not your own. You've been baptized. You belong to Christ. Live like it. And seeing them profess Christ alone, we are also confronted with this question. Where is our faith? All of us this morning, whether you're religious or not, whether you're deeply secular or you consider yourself a deeply religious person, everybody in here today has faith in something. And baptism confronts us with the question, where is your faith? Where is your trust? Where do you find meaning and significance in life? Better still, who is your faith and trust in? And what you will see is that what has already happened to these two young men must happen to you or you will die in your sins. So this morning, at least two things happen as we watch Carson and Cadman profess Christ alone. First, we remember our baptism. Who we are, we too have been raised to walk in the newness of life. Second, we're confronted with this question. Where is your faith right now? What are you trusting in right now? Now, before we hear Cadman and Carson declare the good news and share the story of how they came to believe in Christ, I want to think about baptism. Why? Well, because God's word always explains God's signs. The sign, apart from the word, doesn't mean anything. When the children of Israel saw a pile of stones, the children asked, what do these stones mean? And then God's word interpreted the sign. Or when they took the Passover, they were to ask, what do these mean? What's the point? God's word always explains the sign. The sign, apart from the faith in his word, counts for nothing. So we're now going to take the word and apply it to the sign along three simple questions. First, what is baptism? Second, who should be baptized And number three, what is the significance? What's the symbolism of baptism? Three questions. We won't spend all the same time on each one of them. So first, what is baptism? Would you please locate the first book in the Christian New Testament, the book of Matthew? If you don't have a copy of the Bible, right in the inside order of worship is the gist of the passage that we will use. So Matthew 28. Now, I know Matthew 28 is a familiar passage when we talk about baptism. But just because it's familiar doesn't mean it's not important. You, we can talk of turkey every Thanksgiving. We can talk of Christmas trees every Christmas. Why? Because turkey and Christmas trees are such a part of those two holidays that it's difficult to talk about those two holidays without mentioning them, even if you're against Christmas trees or turkeys. You have to talk about them. Well, they're so familiar because they're so important. Well, can I tell us? that it's difficult to talk about baptism without mentioning Matthew 28. It's so familiar because it's so important when we talk about it. So here's my encouragement, our nudge to us. Let the familiar nature of Matthew 28 excite you and not bore you, just like the familiar nature of turkey and Christmas trees excites you about the holiday season. This is an exciting passage, Matthew 28. Now Christ in this passage, he's back from the dead. Christians actually believe that Jesus died in a body and he got up from the tomb in a body and his heart started beating again. Not a myth, not a fable, not a legend. He rose bodily from the dead. And now in Matthew 28, after he's endured the cross, he's defeated sin and disarmed Satan. Now in his resurrected body, he's standing before his 11 followers and giving them final instructions before he leaves. You do that sometimes. Before you leave, I'm leaving. Here are my instructions. I'm going to write them down for you. Well, now we have Christ's final instructions before his departure because keep these before I come back again. So here we go. For the first time in eternity, do you realize that in Matthew 28, for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus had something he never had, a resurrected body. There he is. He was never a risen king until this moment. And now he stands before them as the risen king with all authority. And here his final commands. Matthew twenty-eight, sixteen. 16. Here are the final commands of our risen Christ. Now, the 11 disciples verse 16 went to Galilee to the mountains to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them. From a passage like this, we learn that baptism is an outward sign of an invisible reality. Baptism, what is it? It's an outward sign of an invisible reality. In this passage, Jesus commands us to use the gift of baptism to mark out people as followers of Christ. Verse 19, make disciples baptizing them, mark them out. It's an outward sign, a physical sign of an inward reality. What that inward reality is, we'll see it under our last question this morning. But for now, just note that Jesus gives to us the gift of baptism as an outward sign to mark out publicly those who are following Christ. By mark out, we can use the word identify. Maybe here's an illustration that would help. Soccer's World Cup is going on. And one way you turn on the TV to know which fans are which in the stadium is by the jerseys they wear, the color of their jerseys. Or maybe you can be like me sometimes and you show up late to where your kid is playing and you get there late and you're at a distance and the game started and you can't see clearly enough. So you ask somebody, what color of jerseys are we rooting for? Well, what's the point? A jersey is a public way that you mark out and identify a team and members of that team. So what's the connection to baptism? Can I put it like this without being trite? I don't want to be trite. I don't want to be irreverent. But in baptism, we put on team Jesus' jersey. Baptism, like a team jersey, but so much greater, so much greater, marks a person out in a public way that identifies them as a follower of Christ. And just like you don't run onto the field, shirts and skins. You don't run onto the field in skins. You don't run onto the field without a shirt on. So you can't really live a Christian life in obedience to Christ without this emblem, without this Baptism, this jersey of baptism. Now, again, we'll say this in a moment. Sometimes moms and dads and pastors and encourage their kids to wait. That's good. That's fine. But for now, we're just making a simple point. What is baptism? It's an outward sign of an invisible reality that like a jersey, it marks you out publicly as a team member and follower of Jesus Christ. So today, Carson and Cadman are saying unashamedly in their own words, I'm with Jesus. I'm on his team, no matter what it costs me, or no matter what may happen to me. I'm on team Jesus. I'm professing that publicly. Now, without this jersey, without this solemn and beautiful emblem, you, you will call your, into question your profession. It doesn't create the relationship with Jesus, but, 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 but it's an evidence of it. I mean, baptism, putting on a jersey. Now, I love the Cowboys. You know that, right? I've worn a lot of Cowboys jerseys and they've never called my number in the game. Wearing a jersey doesn't mean you're part of a team. Baptism doesn't mean you're automatically a Christian. It doesn't do anything apart from faith. But baptism is a sign that we've already placed our faith in Christ. And without this emblem and jersey, I don't know. Have you committed to Christ or not? So what is it? An outward sign of an invisible reality. It's an outward desire to live under Christ, our captain. Second, who is it for? Well, according to Matthew 28, it's for all who want to follow Christ, make disciples and baptize them. Now, here's an implication I would see from this text that others, too, in history, that only those you baptize, only those who've already made a conscious choice to follow the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope in life and death. Jesus's words seem to imply make disciples, baptize them. That you don't baptize people who haven't already made a conscious choice to follow him as one of his disciples. That would mean, can I be a little disagreeable and go? This is going to get a little awkward for a moment. That means that it's wrong to baptize infants. Now, beloved, of course we're aware of the differences among good and godly Orthodox brothers and sisters. Many of my, one of my dearest friends, before he moved out of town and forsook me was a beloved Presbyterian minister. I'm thankful for him. We texted this week even. We even prayed a few weeks ago for a solid Orthodox Presbyterian church here in town. We're thankful for them. However, we only have two ordinances that Christ gave to the church and we don't do anyone any favors when we approach baptism with a measure of indifference. It's not fair to either position, nor does it treat the words of Christ seriously. He meant something by them. He meant meant something by them. Somebody is right and somebody's wrong among evangelical orthodox churches when it comes to who should be baptized. Is it only professing believers or is it infants? So indifference, I'm, here's my pastoral admonition to us. Indifference or agnosticism regarding who should be baptized, regarding Christ's commands is not necessarily a sign of charity. You shouldn't be indifferent to the Lord's commands and what it means. Now, our position at Emmanuel has always been that we believe the Bible teaches that only those who've already repented of their sins and trust Christ should be baptized. And no one could ever be an elder here who is not convictional about that matter, that the Bible teaches only elders should be baptized. Other views aren't simply different, they're wrong. And I know my Orthodox Presbyterian friends who want their teaching elders to be convictional about that as well. Okay, well, why does this matter so much? Who is baptized? What's the big, fat, hairy deal when you say who should be baptized? Well, to baptize those who are not believers interferes with the essential nature of the church and what it means to be a Christian. The new covenant promise in Jeremiah and Ezekiel is a promise of a regenerate heart, a new heart. And thus, only those who've been regenerated should get the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism. The new covenant sign of baptism is not a promise that God will do something. It's a sign that God has kept a promise. He's given somebody a new heart. And baptism is the sign. Baptism then is not a sign like circumcision, which promises God will do something for your children when they come of age. No, 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 no. It's a sign that God has kept the new covenant promise and converting our children, whatever their age is. So the new covenant promise And Jeremiah and Ezekiel was a promise of a regenerate heart. That's the heart of the new covenant. And thus, only those who receive regenerated hearts should receive the sign of the new covenant. It affects the essential nature of the church. Second, here's just some, some pastoring going on as we baptize two young men. It might be prudent, even for those who make a profession of Christ, to wait, especially in the United States. We asked Cindy to wait and went through a long time of waiting with her. But I would say, beloved, this is especially true with our children. Here's the argument we would make as elders. If baptism is to be based on a profession of faith that's observable and credible, then it seems prudent to give time until others can observe whether or not that profession of faith is credible or not. So in the case of our children, and I'm thankful for this, I know you are too, there's rarely a cost for our children to be baptized. The, the, the choice is only applauded. In fact, there's peer pressure to be baptized, not the other way around. So, so it doesn't only involve the individual, but baptism is a congregational affirmation of somebody's belief and faith. This is a credible profession of faith that we can observe. So I've told you before, it's a four-way conversation. It's the person, it's the parents, To keep my peas going. It's the parishioners. Fancy word for church members and congregants. And it's the pastors. If baptism is going to be based on a profession of faith that's credible and observable, it seems prudent to give time to observe whether or not a profession of faith is credible and true. Now, none of this says that children can't be converted at very young ages. Praise God. My wife says she was converted at four. Thanks be to God. None of this denies any of his ability to work. John the Baptist, in the womb, something happened to him. None of this denies that God can supernaturally work at any age, at any time. But it does recognize that given a variety of factors, our ability to discern one's conversion may take some time to observe this. Moreover, even in the common grace of our culture, we recognize the wisdom of delaying certain choices from our kids until they mature. We ask them to wait to drive a car until they're 15. And at 16 by themselves, they can vote at 18, they can drink at 21. We think it wise and prudent likewise to delay at least until 15 and not later. Because all of this just recognizes the process of maturation. Graduated responsibility for something as momentous as baptism. It's what not, not all the... All the elders agree. Not all churches. It's it's fine. This is what we do here as a church. Not all elder. Not all pastors agree. Churches agree. I'm just letting you know that's where we as a church, because we're trying to guard who is baptized, and and, and the observable nature of the gospel. But here's a third reason. Let me go to a third reason. Kind of back to who should be baptized, because it seems that Jesus's words in Matthew 28 implies that you only baptize people who've made a conscious choice to follow him as one of his disciples. Peter seems to reflect that understanding in 1 Peter 3 in verse 21. Here's a verse I went over with these two young men. 1 Peter 3.21. Here's as close as you get to a New Testament definition of baptism. 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism, dot dot dot, is an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's Peter's definition of baptism, 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Peter, who should be baptized? Those who can make an appeal to God through faith in Christ for a good conscience. Question, can an infant make an appeal to God for a good conscience through faith in Christ? No. Then should infants be baptized? No. Why? Because baptism is an outward sign for whom? It's an outward sign for those who've already turned and placed their faith in Christ alone as their only hope in life and death. It's an outward sign of an invisible transformation. So let's review. What is it? An outward sign publicly marking out followers of Christ. Who should be baptized? Only those who've already turned from their sins and placed trust in Christ. Think about it this way. Maybe this would help. Baptism is a drama, a reenactment of the gospel event in which a visible sign is given to what happened invisibly. Now, if the gospel, if baptism is an invisible sign of something that happened invisible, you can't have the sign before the reality actually took place. You don't recreate something that hasn't happened yet. It's an outward sign to mark up publicly those who've already repented and trusted Christ. Now, third, what does baptism symbolize? I'm going to give you four things. I think you have four things to think about here. It's a picture. Let me begin with this. If if the apostles were developing a web page and they wanted to use one word that you could hover over on a website. And if you hovered over that one word, there was a drop down menu of everything that's true of a Christian. The one word they would use in their website is the word baptism. The New Testament writers use baptism as shorthand for everything that happens to a person upon their conversion. The emblem of baptism captures our salvation in full color. I don't know, I don't know if these young kids remember this, but you remember the, the kaleidoscope? So, so baptism it's like an old toy kaleidoscope. And when you look into it and you turn it, there are all kinds of colors and shapes that take place. Through baptism, you see the many facets of what God did to you by his son through the spirit at your conversion. It's a multifaceted picture. And they often, the New Testament writers, often associate this outward act with what happened to you at conversion. So in short, baptism is a symbol of everything God did to you in the gospel, through it, when you believed. So it's hard to say, what does it picture? Well, where do we begin? It pictures lots of things. It pictures your conversion, every aspect of it. Well, here's the question. If you've been saying that baptism is an outward picture of an invisible reality, what are some of those invisible realities that the outward sign of baptism pictures? Here are just four of them. Number one, naming. Baptism is a naming ceremony. Now, in the last, in the last picture, we'll see it, it does show forth our public commitment to Christ. That's true. But we often miss this, that in baptism, somebody besides us is making a public declaration. You still in Matthew 28? Matthew 28 19, Jesus says, don't, don't overlook it. Jesus says, we're baptized into something. What are we baptized into? Baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, what's happening? At baptism, God is giving us his family name. At baptism, God is going public with us. Baptism, as it were, can we put it like this? As a public adoption ceremony in which God gives us his name, his family name. At baptism, we're not simply going public with God. God is going public with us. That's the assurance that we have. That God is declaring publicly to the unseen angels and to everyone here today, I am not ashamed to call Carson or Cadman my son. Hear my declaration. At baptizing, we realize that upon conversion, when you believe, you're given, you're baptized into by the Spirit, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we take on the family name. Baptism then is a visible display, a public ceremony of that invisible naming reality that happened when you first believe. Do you see what a privilege baptism is to all who see it and partake in it? I know that both of you young men, Carson's here, Cadman's here, both of you young men at some levels have expected, experienced rejection from friend groups and the like and family and in your public school. Both of you guys have experienced shame and temptation and what it means to talk about Jesus. Here are two of the most faithful people in our church about non-Christians they want us to pray for. I think that's true. They are among the most frequent praying for their non-Christian friends. You know what it's like where friends have rejected you and the embarrassment that would come for associating with Christ. Well, here's what baptism says, Cadman and Carson, where earthly fathers can fail or forsake you or die like mine because of baptism. You now have a father in Christ who will never leave you or forsake you. You have a new family name or think of it this way. When Jesus was baptized in Matthew three, the heavens were opened. He saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to him and behold, a voice from heaven came saying, behold, this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. Well, well, By virtue now of our union with Christ at conversion, the Lord will look down in the courts of heaven today and say to Cadman and say to Carson, Hey, Gabriel, behold, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. By virtue of our union with Christ. What a privilege that is that he rejoices over you, Carson and Cadman. We sing all these kinds of hymns. He shows his wounded hands and names me as his own. For him I died, for him I lived, and everlasting life and light I freely give. Be not afraid, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. At baptism, it's a naming ceremony, an adoption ceremony. God gives us the Trinitarian family name. And just like the Lord's Supper is meant to be an assurance of hope, so baptism is to be an assurance of hope for all those who know Christ that God publicly marks us out as his own. The ceremony is not, is not simply about your faith and what you've done. It's about what he has done that you might become his son. It's a naming ceremony. Two, baptism is a symbol of our cleansing. A few weeks ago, I've told some of you this story. A few weeks ago, while we were in another room, watching perhaps the last time that Clemson won a football game. We were in another room, Our dog leaped up on the counter and ate a whole plate of fudge. It was not a good moment. Now, later in the middle of the night, the dog grew sick and left all of her sickness all over the carpet. And it took a long time, even finally a trip to Home Depot to get a professional carpet cleaner with professional grade cleaner to clean the filth from the carpet. There's an illustration. What's the connection? What do you suppose it would take to cleanse a soul from the filth of sin and guilt? Where do you go to buy something to cleanse a stained conscience? What do you do to make something right again that feels beyond your ability to do? What do you do then? Here's the great problem between us and God, all of us, that if God, if God should start enumerating our sins, who would be able to stand before the list that he gets? I mean, your spouse can come up with a list. But now what if God came up with a list? Some people, you may be here today. You, you want to start on the periphery of knowledge and ask questions that are hard to get a hold of. You know, well, what about those who suffer? What about those who've never heard? I, I don't know if I can believe in a God who. But there's a harder personal question that you should think about this morning. It's this. Start closer to home. Start in the middle of the circle of knowledge that you know best. What will you do about your own shortcomings and your own sins? What will you do with those? If all that you've done or thought were displayed and played out before, would you be shamed or overwhelmed? How long would you run out of the room? And what would happen if God would start to mark out our sins? There's no carpet cleaner for your soul. Just listen as the people in the Bible wrestle with this question. Psalm 24, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and meet with him? Well, he that has clean hands. Oh, I can do that. But a pure heart? How do you get a pure heart? Psalm 51, 6, you desire truth in the inward parts. The purity that God demands is not external, it's internal. How do you do that? The only hope that we have, can I put it this way? Is a cleansing that comes without human hands. In the Bible, one of the greatest pictures for what God does to our sins is he cleanses them. He washes them all away. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we have done, but according to his mercy, he washed away our sins. And baptism pictures what is necessary for every person in this room. God has to wash away the guilt of our souls. And baptism is a reminder. When you hear, I told Carson this yesterday, you've heard me say it before, when they come up out of the water and you hear the dripping come down, you think, there goes my sin. It's all washed away. I'm drip, dry, cleansed of all my sins. You'll see that too if you've been converted this morning. Remember your baptism. You've been cleansed of your sins. He washed me white of snow. It's a naming. It's a cleansing. It's a uniting. It symbolizes our union and uniting Christ. Carson and Cadman, you are both young men. But in your pursuing Christ, remember that as you age, you will never be alone. First Corinthians 12. Just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks or slaves or free. So you now are part of a new family and a new body. And your baptism publicly reminds you, you've been baptized into a body, into a family. You will always have a family. You will always belong. You're now part of the body of Christ. And united then to Christ, you're then united to all of his people. So here's an implication. Carson and Cadman, you should never walk, live the Christian life apart from the committed fellowship of a local church. Why? You are baptized into a body. You should never be alone because you are baptized into a body. Baptism reminds us of a new name. He's cleansed me from all my sins that united to Christ and his people. Fourth and finally, naming, cleansing, uniting, committing. Baptism symbolizes our commitment to Christ. When I asked these men, we went over several weeks, pictures of baptism, more than I, I said here, Which of the pictures of baptism stand out to you guys as we go through this? They both said this. The fact that we get a new name. And the fact that we are publicly declaring our commitment to Christ. Those two things stand out. It's true that in baptism, Christ goes public with us. But friends, there is no other way around this. That at baptism, you have to commit publicly to Jesus. This is not a one time choice. But a daily choice to take up your cross and die. It's a lifelong commitment to lay hold of Christ. That using the words of Job. That though he slay me. I'll still trust him. That though the fig tree doesn't blossom. The words of Habakkuk. Yet will I trust him. In Galatians 2. Paul describes baptism. You have been clothed with Christ. You're now putting on Christ. That you will never take him off. Having his love tattooed across your heart and soul. You are committing to him forever. You both have experienced a measure of testing. Both of you, I know from talking to you, Carson, more than Cadman, both of you, that both of you young men have experienced dark nights of the soul. Partly because of the battle within and the battle without in circumstances. In your baptism, you are saying that whatever those dark nights of the soul have been or will be, that Christ is worth it. That Christ is better. And as you two young men mature and experience life, and you go to college and you flunk a class, And you get dumped and your heart gets broken. And maybe you get married and maybe you have kids and maybe you get a job. And then maybe sometimes you lose some or all of those things. Just remember one thing. You've been baptized. Just remember you've committed to Christ. You've been named and cleansed and united. And now you must never, ever, ever give up on the Christ who loved you so much. Love him to the end because he loved you to the very end. You will find out as you have, that following Christ will not always be easy. I want to leave ringing in our ears for these young men and us the example of Polycarp who found out that in old age, it doesn't mean following Christ is easy. Polycarp lived in the first century. He was interestingly a disciple of the Apostle John. When he was an old man at 86 years old, the authorities came to kill him. I thought when you got old, people left you alone and you could ride up into the sunset. Leave a cotton-picking 86-year-old man alone. Here's the historical record. The police and horse horsemen came at supper time on Friday with their usual weapons of his coming out against a robber. That evening, they found Polycarp lying down in the upper room of a cottage. He could have escaped and refused, but he said, God's will be done. When he heard that the police and guards had come, he went down and spoke with them. They were amazed at his age and his steadfastness. And some of them said, why did we go to so much trouble to capture a man like this? Immediately, Polycarp called for food and drink for his arresters and then asked for an hour to pray uninterrupted. They agreed. While they ate, Polycarp prayed so full of the grace of God that he could not stop for two hours. The men were astounded and many of them regretted coming to arrest such a godly and old venerable man. When they finished praying, they put Polycarp on a donkey and took him into the city. All they wanted him to do was to admit that he would be loyal to Jesus and Caesar. Don't give up Jesus. Just say that you'll worship Caesar too. But the old man refused. The proconsul pleaded with him, have respect for your old age. Reproach Christ and I'll set you free. Eighty-six years have I served him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn, to turn from good to what is evil. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. So why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior now? Cadman and Carson, we pray that neither us nor you would ever, ever, ever face anything like that. But if you do, remember this day of your baptism. And on that day, be a man. Play the man and hold fast to Christ, who suffered hell for you to bring you to heaven with him remember your baptism hold fast to Christ even at 86 years of age and show the world whether you're 15 or 86 that Christ is worth it that he's the king amen now we're going to have a song that kind of pictures baptism a bit when through deep waters I call you to go it won't I'll be with you and while we're singing that song Threes and fives will come up. And when we start singing, parents, if you'd go get your infants and toddlers and bring, now's the time to go get them and bring them back up again. And then these two young men will come up and give their stories before we see the baptism. Right.
1: Stand and let's sing together how firm a foundation
0: these gentlemen to come up one at a time. We're going to hear... I'll ask them some questions that you'll get to hear. And then when Carson's done, he'll go first, he'll go change. Cadman will come up. And then Cadman will go change. Then we'll sing a song together. So, Carson, would you come up? I'll ask them both the same same questions, three questions. We'll try not to interrupt here. My son? Yes, they want to see you, not me. So, Carson um what is the gospel
1: the gospel is the good news of jesus christ god is our loving creator who made all things but we rebelled against him by choosing to sin rather than to obey him because of our sin we've been banished from god and deserve eternal punishment in hell. but since god so loved the world he sent his own son jesus to die on the cross in our place jesus rose on the third day and is seated at the right hand of the father and all who put their trust in him alone will be saved
0: so, Carson, what's your, tell us your story briefly, of how you came to believe that good news personally.
1: I've heard the good news about Christ for as long as I can remember. My parents and many of my family members are believers, but I've often wondered about when I came to know Jesus personally. My first spiritual stirrings came when I was seven. We went on a trip to Indiana to visit family, and that week we went to vacation Bible school. One night the pastor discussed how we were all sinners and deserved punishment. I remember feeling convicted that I was a sinner. They asked if anybody felt convicted to raise their hand to talk with an adult, and I did. I prayed with a man who was there asking for God's forgiveness. After we were done praying, the man looked at me and said, If you have truly repented of your sins, we have just become brothers in Christ. I'll never forget that moment. But I've speculated about that moment because there was no real change from how I lived after that. Church was so boring, and I didn't think the Bible was that interesting. But the summer before sixth grade, my parents really encouraged me to read the Bible more. So I started reading in Genesis and went from there. Although I didn't get through the entire Bible like I wanted, God really started to change my heart. I soon loved reading the Bible, going to church, talking with my friends about Christ, and learning more about the gospel. So I've wondered, was it Indiana or was it three years ago? Whatever time it was then doesn't determine my salvation now. Jesus says in John 3, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only name of the Son of God. The important thing now is that my, hope is, my only hope is in Christ alone.
0: So why do you want to be baptized?
1: The sacrament of baptism shows us two things. First, we deserve judgment. And second, God has provided salvation from that judgment. In Noah's day, God judged the wicked with the flood. We today are no better than the evil people from Noah's day, and we deserve a greater judgment. But instead of wiping out the human race, God preserved the life of Noah through the ark. Just as God saved Noah, he offers to save all who trust in Christ alone for salvation. Since I've trusted and believed in Jesus, I want to go public by identifying with him forever and leaving my life of sin. Not only that, but God has promised me a new name in baptism, that name being his own. God is calling me as a father calls his own son. How could anyone resist such an offer?
0: I'm, I'm thankful as a, as a father and church member for the influence many of you have had in Carson's life, too. I know leading up to this, I asked many of you individually, do you think Carson is ready? Do you see faith in his life? So this has been a congregational, uh, congregationally involved moment. So thank you all. And you've just heard the good news. And now you're getting ready to see it in a moment. But before you see it, you're going to hear it again. Cadman? I'll ask Cadman the same question so you can hear his understanding and hear his story as well. Cadman, what's the gospel?
2: The gospel comes in a few parts. Firstly, there is the fact that God is perfect, sinless, and holy. He hates sin. It goes against his entire character. Secondly, God loves mankind more than we will ever be able to understand or comprehend. I will not walk a day in rational fear that God does not love me. Thirdly, mankind is sinful. We are arrogant, we put ourselves up as kings and do what is right in our own eyes, turning away from Christ. Daily. I am guilty of this, and I deserve to be cast straight into hell for my sins, but God made a way for me to walk out of my sinful path and on the path that leads to the light. Lastly, he sent his son to be born of the Virgin Mary in a filthy stable, lead a perfect, sinless life through many temptations, and die on a cross carrying the sin of the entire world. He died that I may live, and rose that I may believe he is God, and in doing so, give me a relationship with my Father in Heaven.
0: Cameron, what's the story of how you came to believe that good news?
2: As many of you know, I was brought up here at ABC my entire life, which hasn't been very long, all things (laughs) considered. My parents got divorced when I was around four years old, and that quickly changed the regularity of me going to church. Understandably, as a little kid and for a long while, I did not enjoy going to church, and I did not see the point of going, my eyes were blinded by a young age. As I continued to grow, I continued to think that I believed in God, and all the stories that I had heard from my wonderful, caring Sunday school teachers, such as Miss Connie. And then it happened, the big double-digit birthday. A couple months into being ten, I began to question my faith. It felt like all the stories that I had heard were just that, stories, and I could not wrap my head around the fact that there was a God who I could not see that had every effect on my life. (sighs) About a year after that, I took a dark turn. I walked in sin and in secret, hoping no one would spot what I was truly like and not knowing that there was a perfect God who was agonized by my sin. Several months later, it was like I came from the depths of the ocean of sin to about halfway to the top. I could not clearly see the light, but there was less sinful pressure in my heart. Around that time, I decided I would take a spiritual journey to decide whether I should continue on the path of sin or not, but without God, I plunged back underwater and blinded myself once again, but this time by sin. I should not have escaped that side of myself, but perhaps a few years later, I was alone, walking in darkness, and I felt a wave of guilt out of nowhere. So I stopped the sin of what I was doing till the guilt went away. Then I tried it again, and a few minutes later, I felt the wave of guilt again, so I stopped. That night, my heart was very heavy. I was at my dad's house, and God had pushed waves of guilt onto me, though I was not aware of who did it at the time. So I called my mother. She has raised me very well in the ways of Christ. And I knew I could tell her anything, and she would not be mad. She would help me back to Christ, which I am so grateful to say is what God does when we confess our sins to him. I told her everything that was troubling me, everything terrible that I had done that I could think of that night. Uh, And each time I entered a call, I felt some peace until another thing struck my mind and weighed me down with guilt. It took about three months of this process, gradually getting more and more peaceful until I felt as though I was clean and free from my guilt. (laughs) At which point, God pursued a relationship with me and helped my heart and mind to say yes. I had come to the surface of the water, and while looking at Jesus, I could walk on top of it recently my mind slowly turned from christ and i began and i started to become blind again but he grabbed my hand and pulled me past the blocks of sin that i had put over my head i know that god loves me more than i will ever be able to comprehend i know what he did for me at the cross and i know that i can worship a god who will put me under his name and love me eternally cadman why do you want to be baptized I want to be baptized because I want to follow the command of Christ and also because I want to tell everyone that I am truly on a path with Christ. I want to thank God for loving me enough to send his son to die on the cross for my sins, and I want to humbly accept the amazing gift that God offers me, the gift of joining his family and living and dying under his name.
0: Carson will come first. I'm going to ask him two final questions, and then I'll ask you, particularly church family, uh, a question as well. So... This is a congregational ordinance that we're taking part of. So, Carson, stand up here. Carson, are are you professing repentance from your sin and faith in Christ alone as your only hope? Yes. Do you promise by his grace through his spirit to always walk in fellowship with his people? Yes. Church family, do you promise by his grace to pray for Carson and hold him accountable? Carson? On your profession of faith, I baptize you, our brother, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with him in the likeness of his death, and raised to walk in a newness of life. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Cadman, are you promising repentance from your sins? and faith in Christ alone as your only hope in life and death? Yes. Do you promise by His grace and through His Spirit always to follow Him in fellowship with His people? Yes. Church family, do you promise by His grace to pray for Cadman and hold him accountable? Amen. Cadman, upon your profession of faith, I baptize you, our brother, and in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in the likeness of his death the praise to walk and the newness of life Amen